By the time we get through Revelation chapter 1, we've seen Jesus revealed and portrayed in a way that we never have before throughout Scripture. And we looked last week at this profound and awesome picture of Christ and who he is as the risen Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is the firstborn of the dead, and the one who reigns forevermore. This is who we're called to worship and we're called to serve. And as John gets that incredible revelation, we saw the last thing that Jesus says to him in chapter 1 is, get up, because I've got something for you to say. And he says, I want you to take these words, and I want you to write them down, and I want you to send them to the seven churches. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking through those letters that Jesus sends out to the churches. And what I love about these is there's a very particular formula that Jesus uses as we flow through these letters. Each of them begins with a description of who Christ is, letting them know this is who is writing this letter to him, that it's Jesus. And each letter uses different terminology to describe Jesus in a way that would be particularly profound for the people that were reading the letters. And then it moves on to a a, a commendation where Jesus tells them something that he knows about them, something that they're doing well as a church and individuals, a way that they are taking the gospel and using it for the good of the kingdom, the ways that they are bringing joy to the heart of Christ. But then in five of those seven letters, that commendation is immediately followed by a rebuke of Jesus saying, this is what you're doing that is not good. This is what you're doing that's not the gospel. This is the way that you're living that doesn't reflect me and who I am. And then Jesus moves on to tell the churches what they need to do. Whether they're struggling or thriving, Jesus gives them instructions for how they should continue to live and how they should continue to move. But then lest we start to feel left out, each letter ends with a challenge, not just to the churches to which these letters are being written to, but also to anyone who reads these letters, any follower of Christ who finds these letters in their hand, there's a promise given to each and every one of us as we read, as we hear, and as we conquer. And so when we're looking through these letters, the first one starts with a letter to the church at Ephesus. And so today we're going to look at that letter in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And this is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first, because if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, I am so thankful that you speak to us. When we put this in in contrast to what we saw last week, to the magnitude of how big and awesome Jesus is, the fact that, that his face is like looking at the sun in full force, that he is that big, that majesty, that he is that full of power. And yet, he speaks to us. God, that is overwhelming. And so as we look at these words of Jesus written to the church at Ephesus, God, help us to see the places where we need to be challenged to to excel more, to continue on in our faith, to hold fast and to endure. But God, also help us to see the caution in this passage as we look at a church that had lost its love. But God, help us to be the people who conquer so that one day we'll be able to sit with you in paradise and take of the tree of life. And so God, as you are speaking to this church 2,000 years ago, we ask now that you continue to speak to your church here today and that your words really would bless our hearts and our lives. They would inspire us to action, endurance, and love. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you've talked to me for any length of time over the past We'll call it two months. I'm sorry. Because there's a good chance that I've probably spent at least a little bit of that time, especially if you happen to be at our small group each and every week, talking about all of the ridiculous documentaries and podcasts and articles that I'm consuming about endurance athletes. I don't know why, but for some reason, I've just been fascinated by these people who do these incredible feats of endurance. And so we watched a documentary a couple weeks ago about the Barclays Ultra Marathon, which is this race that happens every year in the, the Appalachian Mountains, and it's around 100 miles or so, and it lasts over about two and a half days. And it's been going since the mid-80s, and now it's become kind of a world-famous thing where all of these ultra marathoners, people who are conditioned and ready to run 100 miles at a time, which in and of itself is insane. But now they go to this thing every year. And since the mid 80s, I believe less than 20 people have ever finished it. I also listened to a podcast with an interview about a man who had completed the what they call the hiking and biking triple crowns, which means that he has hiked the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide. In addition to that, he has biked the Tour Divide Trail, the Colorado Trail and the Arizona Trail which all of those things combined means that he's hiked and biked on just six individual trails over 11,000 miles, which is nuts. But while those people that do these things and conquer these things are incredibly impressive and overwhelming, as I've been thinking and listening to all these things, what's really stuck out in my mind are the people who attempt these things and then fail and then start all over. 
There are people that go to that Barclays Ultra Marathon every single year, and some of them don't make it past the third loop. It's a 20-mile loop, and they run it five different times. Some of them don't make it past the third loop, which if you finish the third loop, it's called a fun run, which is super demeaning. But if you finish those, you get the fun run. Most people haven't even gotten through the fun run, and they keep coming back every year. And you watch them when they're, they're coming to the point of quitting. And when you quit during this race, they literally play taps as you walk back through the trail. And sometimes, because the trail is so dense and confusing, you can be a couple hours out into the trail, get lost, decide to quit, and it takes you 10 hours to walk back. And they keep coming back because something is broken in their heads. I listened to another interview with a man who was attempting the Tour Divide bike trail, which goes kind of like the Appalachian Trail, which goes from the bottom of the country or the top to, or the top to bottom, depending on which way you decide to ride it. And he was riding in the race, and he was preparing for it and getting ready. The the Tour Divide is about 2,700 miles and over 200,000 feet of elevation gain as you go through this. Insanity. In his first race, he goes and he gets 1,100 miles, probably 10 to 14 days into this trail and blows out his knee and can't finish. And then two years later, after rehab, he decides to go back, and this time he accomplishes 700 miles and has a major injury and has to quit. And at the time that they were having this interview, he was talking about the preparation that he was going through to go out for his third time. And to me, that kind of endurance is even more incredible than the people that get all the way to the end. When we look at the church of Ephesus, we see a church that is enduring in an incredible way. This letter starts off with Jesus saying the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we talked about that imagery last week, about how these seven stars represent these angels over these churches, and the seven lampstands represent not only the seven churches that these letters are going to, but the totality and completeness of God's people. And we're reminded that Jesus walks with us. And so Jesus comes to this church saying, listen, I am the one who is with you in the midst of your endurance. And then verse 2 begins by saying, I know your works. What an amazing sentence for Jesus to utter. Because it's easy to feel unnoticed. I would imagine that each and every one of us in the room today have had some period in our life where we were doing something that to us felt really significant. That we were doing something maybe for other people. Something that was good and righteous and holy. Something that we kind of had a little pride glowing up inside of our hearts. And then we look around and it seems like nobody is paying attention to. Michael and I experienced this this morning as Amy walked in with her beautiful new haircut. And everyone was telling Amy about how beautiful her haircut was. But nobody paid attention to the fact that both Michael and I had a haircut last night as well. And so sometimes you do these things and nobody pays attention. And it's frustrating because I want to be called beautiful too. Thank you. But also, sometimes we feel unnoticed by God. And the Bible's filled with people that felt that way too. Saying, God, how long am I going to toil? How long am I going to strive? How long am I going to struggle? I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm living a righteous and holy life. I am honoring you. I'm in church every single Sunday, and yet my life isn't the way that I want it to be. I don't feel like you're paying attention to me, but look at all these people around me who are doing things completely contrary to your will and who you are, and they're thriving, and here I am just constantly caught in the struggle. Don't you even notice? 
but he knows. Here's Ephesus, a church that is struggling. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And this is a word, that, a phrase that came up in our community group on Tuesday night. This idea that Christianity involves striving and turmoil and toil and struggle. And Jesus says, I know. I know that you're struggling. I know that life is difficult for you now. I know the hard work and the effort that you're putting into. And that is an incredible, awesome thing that Jesus is saying. Because remember the description of Christ. If he's this big and awesome that, that John tells us in the first, last part of chapter 1, that he is the Son of Man clothed in a long white robe with a golden sash, and the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. We go on and on and on. That's the Jesus that we're worshiping, and yet he's that big and that awesome and that powerful, and yet he still sees us, and he knows our work, and he knows our endurance. And he says to the church at Ephesus that he knows their patient endurance. And so not only were they enduring, not only were they striving, not only were they going through great toil and turmoil, but they were doing it patiently. They weren't whining or complaining. They weren't looking around pointing fingers. They were enduring well. And what were they enduring? He says, I know you and your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. They were enduring an onslaught of false teaching in and around their church. And what's so crazy about the history of Christianity is we can look around and, and recognize and know that there's false teaching all around the world. There's false teaching in churches. There's false teachings about churches. And we can say, well, that makes sense. Here we are 2,000 years away from the start of the Christian church. And so, of course, over time, people are going to come up and want to use it for their selfish ambition. They're going to want to use it to get a message out that's not Jesus but sounds like Jesus. And so, of course, over time, false teaching would grow up. But what we see in all the letters early on in the life of the church is that false teaching is as old as the true church. And as soon as there were people gathering in the name of Jesus, there were people coming into those circles trying to sway the people away from Christ and towards something that wasn't true. But Jesus says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And this highlights a really important part of being a Christian. Because we know that when we follow after Christ that we are brought into a body and that we are saved to be together and to grow together and to learn together that God has equipped leaders inside of the church and the church itself to teach and equip and encourage the people of God to grow in righteousness. But sometimes we have a bad tendency to leave our spiritual growth and our doctrinal truth to the professionals. We walk into a room, and if somebody looks like a preacher, sounds like a preacher, acts like a preacher, then they say their words, we take those words, we put them in, we take them to heart, and we don't ever check those things at all. 
And what happens is, especially if you have someone that comes in with ill intentions, that takes us and leads us away from the gospel. But the reality is, there's no such thing, as Shane was talking about Tuesday night at our small group, there's no such thing as an infallible leader outside of Christ. And so when anyone stands in a pulpit and preaches the word of God, it should be our desire to do the best we can to be faithful to the word of God. But just because I say it doesn't mean that it's gospel truth. And so we all have the responsibility, no matter how well we trust our leaders, no matter how well we trust community group leaders, we have to recognize that God has given us access, especially in the world and in the community in which we live. We have unbelievable access to God's word. And so it's our responsibility to dive in so that we can know truth in the face of a lie especially because we do live in a world where it's easy to hear anyone in the world say anything that they want about what they believe about Jesus or what they believe about the Bible. And so with all of these things surrounding us, we have to be sure that we are deeply rooted in Scripture, which again begins with the church taking seriously our responsibility and the leaders of the church taking seriously the responsibility to pour into Scripture and to be as doctrinally sound as we possibly can and teach not our ideas but the Word of God. But it also falls on the life of every church member to do the hard work of knowing God's Word inside and out. And so when we hear a lie, we can recognize it. But man, this is, it's hard work. It's a lot easier just to sit there like a sponge and absorb everything that comes in and out of our ears and say, well, this sounds good, or it sounds like Jesus, or it sounds like the Bible, or it sounds like something I want to do or something I want to be a part of. It affirms the part of me that I want to be affirmed, and so I'm just going to dive in. But the church at Ephesus said, nope. When someone comes in teaching a a gospel contrary to the word of God, When somebody comes in teaching us things that are okay, that aren't okay to God, when people come in teaching us to believe things other than Jesus, when they come in, even if they flower it up like Christian language, we can't bear that. We're not going to fall prey to that because we are going to endure inside of Scripture and make sure that we test every word that comes out of the mouths of those who claim to be apostles or those who claim to be teachers. And when we find those things to be false, we're going to have nothing to do with it at all. They never abandoned their devotion to the truth. And in doing so, they had not grown weary because they were endurance athletes and finishing the work that God had given them and pouring into Scripture and being students of the Word the way that God has called us to be. And that should be our desire too. And that means that we have to be daily interacting inside of Scripture. That we have to be studying the word not only together as a church, not only in small groups, but we need to be faithful to do that in our own private and quiet times as well so that when we come with the congregation, so that when we come to small groups, that we're bringing something to the table, that we're adding something to what people are being shaped by. And so as iron sharpens iron, so each one of us will sharpen one another, but also so that when we come together, we can recognize a lie because we know the truth. And so Ephesus is a church that endures for the sake of the gospel. But, and as we go through these letters, those three words are going to change meaning depending on which church God is speaking to. Because sometimes those are really affirming words in letters to churches like Philadelphia, where we see that they're doing well and they're enduring patiently, but also everything is working together. And so he's given them this awesome promise that they have. But also there are churches like 
Ephesus, where they're doing some things well, but. Now, Jesus, at one point, was teaching his disciples about how they should be known and how they should be recognized. And he said to them, they will know you're my disciples by your incredible talents. They'll know you're my disciples by your incredible moralism and by the way that you follow the rules. They'll know that you're my disciples by how often you go to church and how much influence you have and how much wealth and fame you have. No, that's not it at all, right? See, if you're doing the study work, you should have thought right there, no, this doesn't sound right. Chris is saying lies and heresy, and we should throw him out of the room right now. That's what that looks like, because Jesus didn't say any of that. He says, they will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. See, the foundation of the Christian faith, the foundation of our salvation, the foundation of everything that we do, the reason behind everything we do is love. Because the Bible tells us that we can love God because he first loved us. And so we sing songs to Jesus because Jesus loved us before we loved him. That while we were sinners, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive through Jesus. And he did that through his kindness and by lavishing his love on us. The foundation, the bedrock of Christianity is love. But here in Ephesus, they were a church that had endured so much. They stood on the banner of sound doctrine and good theology, and they were holding tight to that, and they weren't growing weary. But then Jesus looks at them after that awesome commendation, and he says, but I have this against you. Which again, when we put that in context of recognizing who Jesus is in chapter 1, that is a phrase that should shake us to the core. Jesus, the God of the universe, looks at a church and he says, I have this against you. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. And this love, because we have to ask the question, what love is it? Have they abandoned their love for God? Have they abandoned their love for other people? And the answer is yes. Because we're taught in scripture that there is no way to disconnect those two. Our love for God is linked so tightly to our love for other people that the two can't possibly be removed. And I know we talk about these passages before, but James tells us that if we worship God with our mouths, but then we go and we speak hatred against our brothers and sisters, then that's like salt and fresh water being together that it's not possible to do. We can't worship God properly if we use those same mouths to curse others. John says that if we claim to love God, But if we hate our brothers and sisters, then we are liars and the truth isn't in us that we are not following the gospel. And so here you have a church that is deep in theological soundness and sound doctrine, something that should be the aim of every single Christian in every single church. They have that box checked off and yet they had a lack of love. And I want to pay attention to how the ESV words this. It says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Not that you've walked away from it, not that you've moved on from it, not that you've simply forgot it. Jesus says, you have abandoned this love that you had at first. And that is such a harsh word. But I imagine for the church at Ephesus, it didn't feel like abandonment. Because clearly they had a love at first. 
their desire for sound doctrine, their desire to know the rich truths and have this theological richness of their church, their desire to stand up against false teachers and call lies what it is, that all was born out of a desire to love God. That was all born out of desire to honor Jesus and a passion for truth. But clearly, as time went on, there was a slow decline of love through what became passive obedience. At a certain point, it became more important for them to be right than to be Christ-like. It became a philosophy and an idea somewhere out in the distance that they would use for arguments against false teachers, but they had lost the love for God and the love for others that first drove them to that point. But I think this is one of the most easily excused sins in the life of a church. That we can say, look, I know my Bible. I know my Jesus. I spend a lot of time studying scripture and I know how to divide the word of truth. I know how to stand firm on truth. I know how to call out people for their lies and for their falsehoods. I'm okay. And yeah, maybe I don't love people the way that I should. And maybe I'm not moved by the gospel very much anymore, but look how good I look. It's Pharisaic in its nature. We're able to say, I know the law of God, and it doesn't matter whether I follow it or not, because I sound like and I look like I know who God is. But it's not easily excused with God. Because he calls them out for this sin, and then look what he says in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. He calls them to remember Don't you remember that love that you had for me? Don't you remember that love that you had for others? This is Ephesus. This is where Paul writes those words to the church saying, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God has made you alive in Christ and lavished his love on you so that you can walk in good works. John is saying, go back to there. Pay attention to what you used to know that was true about the gospel, that being made alive in Christ and knowing the truth of the gospel should inspire you to a life of love for not only God, but for the people that God has created. And he calls them to repent. He says, you need to make a total change in who you are because you have abandoned the true God and the truth of his gospel. But that word seems harsh because I think most of the time in our lives, whether it's for us or people around us, we reserve repentance for the repugnant. We reserve repentance for the really big things. When we get to the lowest point in our lives or the things that seem very obviously sinful, when we get caught in our sins, that's when we like to repent. When our sin becomes so overwhelming that it can't go unnoticed and it brings us to the lowest place, that's where we come to God and say, look how far I've fallen. I'm sorry. I'm turning away from this and I'm chasing after you. But now Jesus is saying here, no, you need to repent because you have neglected the most important truth of the gospel that you are called to be a people of love. And just in case they weren't taking it seriously, he says you need to repent And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's seven lampstands. They represent seven churches. This church has a lampstand. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, 
from this perversion of my gospel and this perversion of my truth. I am going to walk in and I'm going to take your lampstand off of its stand and you're not going to be anymore. Jesus says, if you don't get back to who you're supposed to be and what you're called to do, I'm not going to allow you to be a church anymore. Because the reality is a church without love, no matter how faithful or no matter how doctrinally sound, is no church at all. And I don't do this much. But in the past 10 years, we've seen the truth of this in a couple occasions in our country. We've seen churches that were founded on biblical truth. Pastors who were given an identity as this is someone who knows the word of God. This is someone who's passionate about truth. And through that, their churches grew and grew to thousands of members across multitude of campuses, sometimes up to 30, 40,000 people tuning in to hear these pastors. But what we find out is they were a church that was sound doctrinally, but from the leadership down lacked love and affection and compassion for their people. And those churches of 30,000 plus people are gone. And so when we look at this, we need to take this seriously because we are going to be a church that is passionate about sound doctrine and the truth of who God is. And we are going to dive into scripture as often as we get an opportunity, but we can never allow rightness or sound doctrine to take away our love. Jesus looked at the the last sentence here is almost, almost patronizing. He says, yet you have this, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus says, cool, you hate the same things I hate, but you don't love the same things that I love, and it's not enough. And then he gets to verse 7. And just in case we're, we're thinking we don't have a case in this, just in case we're looking at this and just kind of processing through Ephesus, He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now Jesus says, hey, listen up, everybody else. If you started tuning out because you don't live in Ephesus, here's where I need you to come back in and pay attention. And the book of Revelation presents to us a picture of Christ as victor that Jesus is the king, and he doesn't take that crown passively, but that Jesus rides in as the one who's strong enough to break the seal. Jesus rides in as the one with truth coming out of his mouth, who rides into the world and overwhelms the powers of evil and darkness and redeems his world from the inside out, making everything right and everything new. Jesus wins the victory. And because of that, we have this promise that Paul gives us, that if we put our faith in Christ, that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That the victory that Jesus won, he won on our behalf so that we can live and conquer with him. And so now John is writing this letter saying to the one who conquers, to all of you who belong to Christ, to all of you who follow after Jesus, the victory is yours. But also those same responsibilities that were given to the church at Ephesus are given to us as well. And enduring for the sake of sound doctrine can feel difficult because we live in a world filled with lies inside and outside the church, trying to steer us away from Christ, trying to steer us away from the gospel, trying to steer us away from a life that honors and glorifies God to either honor and glorify ourselves or someone else. And so there's constantly something pulling at our affections, trying to get us to lead away from Christ. And yet we have to hold fast. And that is incredibly 
difficult. But on the other side, living a life of love is incredibly difficult because people are hard to love. And loving people as Christ loves us is overwhelming and it's emotionally draining and it's taxing, especially while we're trying to balance being people that stand firm on truth and learning to speak the truth in love, learning to affirm the truth in love. Doing those things apart from one another is difficult. Bringing those two things together feels impossible. But that's our calling. That's who Christ has called us to be. People who take both our doctrine and our affections very, very seriously and have the two things moved by one another. That we're moved to a passion for sound doctrine because we love God and we love others. And as we grow deeper in our faith and our understanding of Christ, that moves us to love God more and to love other people more. And thank God that he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us when we're weak. Francis Schaeffer once said that biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. And it's true because it's claiming to know the truth, but it having absolutely zero effect on our lives, our relationship, or our worship. And so we need to have an orthodoxy, a right thinking about the gospel that's motivated by a love for God and a love for others. And I can assure you, as we do that, it's going to feel like conquering. It's going to feel like war. Making war on ourselves and our own evil desires. Making war on the temptation and the falsehoods around us. And making war on the part of our lives that don't want to love people the way that Christ loves us. But Jesus says if we do, if we conquer, then we have this promise that he will grant the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And if you were here when we were going through the book of Genesis, the first part of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 tells the story of sin entering into the world and God protecting the tree of life from broken, sinful people. And what we see there is the story of how sin takes away our tree. It takes away our inheritance. We were supposed to walk with God forever and sin takes that away. But Jesus here says to the one who conquers, you'll be set free once and for all from your sin and your brokenness and you'll taste the spoils of Christ's victory and you'll dwell in paradise forever and I will give you back your inheritance. And that's the good news of the gospel. That if we put our faith in Jesus, that it's not based on what we do or how we earn our way to God, that Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be done through his death and resurrection. And if we believe in Christ and repent of our sins, not only are we new creations here and now, not only are we set free from our guilt and our shame and our sin, but we have this eternal promise that we will be with Christ forever the way we were meant to be. And so if you've never put your faith in Christ or never been baptized before, then please don't leave here today without talking with me about what it means to follow after Christ in salvation. So what do we do? What do we gain from all of this? First, we need to learn to endure false teaching by testing. We need to be people who are faithful in the word of God. We need to be people who are constantly encouraging each other in the truth, standing firm in the truth, and testing everything that we hear and everything that we say by the word of God. And through that, we need to learn to remain faithful to the gospel and hold fast. Hold fast with endurance and patience, knowing that God sees what we're doing. 
and finding our reward in that and in that alone. But we also need to hold fast to love. And we need to remember that we are nothing without it. We can call ourselves a church all we want, but if we don't have love for God, and if we don't have love for those inside of the church and outside of the church, then we're not a church at all. And then as those things increase, we need to learn to conquer sin and lies through truth and through love in our lives and in the lives of others, and then we just become people of hope. And as we go through Revelation, that's going to be the theme that the marker of a true Christian is both endurance and hope. That we struggle, that we toil, that we have to endure a lot of things, but we do that with an incredible hope knowing that because of what Christ has done for us, we have a promise and an inheritance that no one can take away. And so let's be people of truth, let's be people of love, and let's be people of hope.